seven, six, six, Welcome to Higher Talk, a podcast on the history, theory, and practice of international relations. I'm your host, Elon Kluger. This week, I spoke with Professor David Brown. Professor Brown is the Horace A. Raffensperger Professor of History at Elizabethtown College. He's the author of numerous books, including biographies of F. Scott Fitzgerald, Richard Hofstadter, and the subject of our conversation this week, The Last American Aristocrat, The Brilliant Life and Improbable Education of Henry Adams. I enjoyed this conversation as I have long been fascinated both by Henry Adams and his brother Brooks and love talking with someone extremely knowledgeable about both figures. One last note, if you enjoy my podcast, I would love it if you'd leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as it helps others find the show. Thank you. One of your earlier books is an intellectual biography of the historian Richard Hofstadter. Hofstadter was famously not archivally inclined, calling such historians archive rats. He also leaned much more to the stylistic than scientific view of history. We'll get to Henry Adams' view later on that, but what do you think of that balance between scientific versus stylistic history? You know, that's something that's sort of embedded in the culture because lots of universities, history is placed in the social sciences, but lots of other universities, uh, and I think colleges, it's in the humanities. I find that interesting because no one seems to have any uncertainties about where to place chemistry or occupational therapy, such disciplines like that. So this seems to be something that is part of what it means to reconcile with history. Is history more nearly a science or is it more nearly uh, an interpretive art? And I think that that Hofstadter leaned in the latter direction with the emphasis on interpretation. In other words, you know, marshalling evidence, but what do you have to say? Why are you marshalling evidence? Is it to know more and more about less and less? Or is it to make statements that might be informative to our culture, even if that means, you know, sort of, you know, pressing beyond what, you know, mere archival sources might tell us. Presumably in a Jeffersonian sense, let all the arguments go out there, put them into the marketplace of arguments, and hopefully the good arguments will stand and the poor arguments will fall. You know, history can call itself a social science, but one of the hallmarks of historical study is historical revision. So what does that suggest to us about the so-called certitudes of the past? and our ability to interpret these lessons. So you quote in, in the in the biography saying, quote Hofstadter saying, I know it is risky, but I still write history out of my engagement with the present. So that's more about that interpretation. So do you think the present should be shaping our historical writing? It inevitably does in some ways in terms of what we find interesting or certainly writing right. style even. But are we sort of doomed to follow Croce's aphorism about all history is contemporary history? Or is there something that could be sort of out of time about the historical work? Well, you know, if there's a lot of history being written, what you're going to get is some of both. There's some people who are going to, you know, just, you know, history for the sake of history, purists, if you want to call them that. And they're going to, you know, address some questions of the past that might not really be germane to anybody but themselves. God bless. Others are going to, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they're aware of it or not, they're going to be informed by their environment. Even people who are practicing you know, history for the sake of history, they, they, they still have contexts. They still have lives. And presumably the way that they, that they you know, well, you know, you, you reference Hofstadter 
the historian engage? Unless your dissertation committee is going to pick your topic for you, you have to pick the topic. And of course, that raises the question of why. And that might lead us also to the question of what does my picking topic A instead of topic B say about me, my interests, my preferences? How can, how can the scholar not, be, not, not impose his or her criteria at some point into something as basic as what archive will I go to? You might want to read you know, Carl Becker on this a little bit. Becker was one of these interesting you know, sort of historical relativists in the 1930s. And although a very, very capable you know, scholar, and uh, you know, he raised the very sensible question, the obvious question, when historians say that they're being you know, merely objective, are they, are they taking into account that whatever they write on, there's millions and millions of facts involved in that very thing. But of course, the historian has to condense, has to cut, and has to choose which few hundred facts he or she is going to use. What is the criteria for which one does that? Presumably, one's past, one's upbringing, one's education, one's cultural reference points. So that goes into your uh, biography of Henry Adams, which is certainly a very widely covered subject. I mean, there's still, like, like you said about Becker being millions of different facts. So how do, is it you select things that haven't been covered before? Or there's still like a standard arc. So how do you go about writing about someone who's been beforehand a lot? Sure. So, so there's some things that, that you have to cover if you're going to do a biography. Hofstetter, I didn't go heavy into the personal life. Hence, as you know, the subtitle was an intellectual biography, in which I was predominantly wrestling with his ideas. With Henry Adams, there's some things that, that need to be covered. The fact that he was an Adams, and that when he wrote his story, history, he did so as a member of that family from a certain perspective. One must you know, cover his marriage because it was very ubiquitous. One must cover his major works, including the education of Henry Adams. Or else you're really going to disappoint a lot of readers. What I, what I thought I could bring to that project the previous historians couldn't bring to it was a current day, you know, circa 2020 reference point and sensibility. In other words, you know, the way that, that I would read the past would be somewhat different than the way, say, that uh, Ernest Samuels, who was one of Adams's previous biographers, he wrote a trilogy that were published from the late 40s through the mid 60s. His training was a bit different. He was an English professor at Northwestern. And of course, his cultural reference points were different. You know, presumably, you know, you know, he was, you know, when, when he was going to graduate school, you know, in the 1930s uh, into the 1940s, how he was being trained was different than how I was being trained in graduate school in the 1990s. And then, of course, our cultural reference points are much different. You know, for, for, for Samuels, as a young man, the Second World War would have been, you know, a very, very large thing looming in his, his everyday you know, consciousness and mentality. With me, the reference points would be different. And so how we, how we read a subject like Henry Adams is going to a certain extent be, be determined by that training, those cultural reference points, mixing with, coming into contact with Adams and his scholarship and writings. The title of your book is The Last Aristocrat. And so that's referring, you argue that it's sort of like he's a bridge between the colonial and the modern, but that's also part of with him, with his uh, roots being the president, John Adams, and then John Quincy Adams, as well as his father, Charles Francis Adams Sr. And so how did Adams think, there's some of it in the education of Henry Adams, but how did he, his long lineage, like John Quincy Adams, for instance, when his brother wrote a draft of a biography of John Quincy Adams, 
he replied and like tore into him for being too, I don't know if hagiographic is the right word, but he portrayed him as a paragon of virtue, wisdom, and foresight, which in the words of Brooks Adams, which Henry Adams did not necessarily agree with. So how did he view that sort of tension in his roots? He was certainly aware that it was there. I think in some ways he, he dealt with it through deflection. He wrote a, a nine volume history of the United States and the administrations of Jefferson and Madison. In other words, he did not begin with the Federalists of whom his great-grandfather, John Adams, of course, had been a vice president and, and then president under this partisan system. And John Adams you know, factors in very little in, in, uh, in Henry Adams' history. John Quincy Adams, a bit more in, in, you know, as, as, a, as an officer in the cabinet of, of James Monroe when he was serving as Secretary of State. But, but uh, you know, Henry doesn't deal with hagiography. He doesn't, he doesn't push that emphasis too much in that work, which for him was a, you know, very much a work of scholarship. He deals with it a little bit more as we might expect in the education of Henry Adams. But even so, it's, it's a bit glancing. He can't tell us too much about John Adams because he never knew John Adams. Henry was born in 1838. His great-grandfather died 12 years earlier. But he did know John Quincy Adams a bit. Uh, he was 10 when the old man died. And one of the more fascinating and endearing stories in education is when, as a, a boy, you know, Henry was whining and kvetching to his, his mother. He didn't want to go to school. It was a hot day. The old man, his grandfather, took him by the hand and walked him a couple miles without saying a word, just silent, you know, and, and put him in the school chair, impressing upon Henry that education was an important thing. And so, you know, Henry's telling us there that he's not going to, to go into any, you know, deeper nuanced discussions about what he might think about his grandfather's statecraft or public career. But he wants us to know that for him, his great, his grandfather, was a very human person. And, uh, you know, sort of operating within that, that sort of you know, quasi-Puritan model of education being uh, a tremendous thing, uh, a privilege. And Henry was gonna get it, whether he wanted it or not. And also it's, it's a funny story. Henry is, is telling a tale on himself and, and bring, you know, this great historical personage to the table in a way that really humanizes, you know, John Quincy Adams. Was, was his view just, one to just try avoid the subject generally because Brooks Adams, he his brother wrote a book, The Emancipation of Massachusetts, which was sort of a very anti, I don't know, the whole family, not the family line, but the whole history of Massachusetts and the founders. And Henry didn't comment on that book publicly, I don't think. And he certainly was not writing stuff in that similar manner. Was he just trying to avoid the subject altogether or did he have views? He just didn't get around to sharing them. Well, I'm sure he had views. He wasn't interested in, in you know, spending a, a couple of years on a scholarly project like that. And, uh, and he wasn't interested in writing a review of the book. He had been singed by his older brother, Charles Francis Adams, who, who wrote some real kind of withering reviews on some of Henry's early books, because that's just kind of how Charles Francis was. Henry, Henry knew who he was. Henry was interested in leaving as much of that incestuous Quincy, Boston, Cambridge world behind. And so that's why, you know, as a still young man, you know, he, he, left, he left it behind. You know, he, he quit a Harvard professorship that he didn't want in the first place, that he felt was sort of pressured on him by both the institution and his family, and he left. So even though he was, I think he remained interesting, or rather interested throughout his life in the gossip about Boston and some of those people, you know, story, sort of as a novel, 
And how is this unfolding? How are people aging? What are their kids and grandkids doing? He was interested in that, but, but no, he wasn't interested in, in, in writing a history, you know, showing how that incestuous world evolved over a couple centuries. So this is, I guess, the big question. What does Adams mean by education? Yeah. So in the education of Henry Adams, he uses it in an ironic sense. This is, this is in a sense, his way of telling us that America isn't all that it should have been. So when he says tongue in cheek in a deflecting manner, my career, my life was a failure. And that's the term that he uses, failure, the operative term, because my education was deficient. And again, sort of tongue in cheek, he says, you know, I, I wasn't educated to be a robber baron. I wasn't, I wasn't educated to be a, a politician who wasn't interested in leadership, but was just interested in, in getting a silly payoff from the sugar trust or the coal barons, something like that. In other words, you know, this is somebody who was, was raised in the pre-Civil War era with an distinguished family to think that the proper education was a civic education, civic mindedness. And then, you know, after the Civil War, he sees this tremendous rise of, 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 of industry and empire and, uh, and self-interest and less civic interest. It's not about going into politics, excuse me, being a statesman and being the next Washington or Adams or Jefferson. Now, this is the age of Grover Cleveland, Chet Arthur. If one wants to be somebody, one wants to be an industrialist, Carnegie, Rockefeller. And so for Henry, that is a real step down, but it's what our culture has given purchase to. So it's now about making money. And so Henry says, because when I was at Harvard in the 1850s, and the emphasis was not on being selfish and just making money. It was on how we were supposed to better Boston and better America. We were ill-equipped to deal with the challenges that we would face with adults. In a sense, this is where we're always at. You know, you know state legislators looking at state universities and budgets, they're always asking the education that the state is paying for here, is it relevant you know, to, to, to where jobs are going to be in the future? And so Henry, in a sense, he anticipates that argument, but he's tongue is very much in cheek. What he's telling us is that, you know, America, it increasingly prizes materialistic civilization and that's what it rewards. And so it's not going to educate us in, in, in the ways of, of, of leadership, like, like we thought it, it would and could. So would it then be the, the sort of miseducation of the world rather than the education of Henry Adams? Cause I, I mean, that seems like the focus is more on everyone else rather than uh, his own development. Sure. Every time, you know, Henry gives us an example of where he failed, it really is an example of, in a sense of, yes, how, how America has come up short on its ideals. So this education is, it's a fine term. It's, it's, it's literally closer, I, I think, you know, to, to what he's getting at. But, but Adams was very careful in, in how he chose that term. He, he wants to put himself out there. I mean, it's his memoir. So he's at the center of the story. And so he asks this question, what went wrong? And in an ironic sense, sometimes in a jocular sense, he trots this out. And if he didn't, if he was just sort of condemnatory and, and, and mordant about the whole thing, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the memoir it is. There's a playfulness to it, in part because the acid that he comes in with, it doesn't always seem like it's acid. You have to sort of read between the lines. So was his education really a failure then? Or was that sort of the joke of it? Like Brooks Adams in his in the essay, The Heritage of Henry Adams, talked about him 
the education of Henry Adams basically being a joke that he took too far. I don't know if that's the right view of it. Was was he just like making a commentary, like you said, about not trying to be too mordant? Is but was it like was it really a failure? Did he succeed? What was going on? You know, when 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 Brooks uses that kind of language, I think that probably tells us more about Brooks than Henry, because a lot of people did approach the education, despite the fact that it's a classic. You know, won a Pulitzer Prize, so it received some type of you know imprimatur from the literary community. But, but, but Brooks was aware that the book was, was being received in other places as idiosyncratic. And so he went, look, Henry was just sort of, he was just sort of joking around here. Well, I think Henry might say, you know, I did employ literary strategy, but underneath the literary strategy, I mean, cause I, you know, I, I didn't want to just come out there and say, you know, well, look at all this awful stuff. You want to, with your students, right? You, you want them to sort of figure this stuff out on their own. And so Herr Dr. Professor is, is leading us. He's leading the horse to water. And so, no, I don't think Henry did view his life as a failure in the ways that he cared about. He was saying, well, of course, you know, to, 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 to lots of people out there, I'd be a failure because I'm interested in things like Mont Saint-Michel and Chartres that, uh, that they're not interested in that one can't make any money off of. But even that was a bit of a pose because Henry understood that he had a lot of intellectual charisma. He understood that people, including lots of young people, um, 20s and 30s, Washington society, they coveted his company, not simply because he was some ancestral relic from the past, that he was an Adams with the magic name, but also because he was intellectually and argumentatively pungent. And to go over to his house for breakfast this would be about noon, you know, on the weekday and, and, and sit at a table with five or eight other people and listen to him, you know, just sort of offer commentary. That was a real cultural education. So Henry knew what he could do. So again, education was a bit of a pose. Failure was a bit of a pose. He was, I think, actually quite proud of, of the things that he could do and accomplish in his writing, for example. So there's sort of this... You've mentioned in, in previous podcasts about Henry, the few surviving photos of Henry Adams being like making him look all sad or, or distant and old. And he did, he did like lose his hair in his twenties and seems sort of like more depressive type, but, and there's a letter from Theodore Roosevelt that you quote in the book about John Hay saying that he was basically, I was spending too much time with the Henry James and Henry Adams who were charming, but very cynical and like satirical cynicism, which which he ended up sort of imitating in a way. So is that the fair characterization? There's like, you've quoted another letter with Henry James saying the real Henry Adams or like a different flavor of him at least. So like, what, who is the real Henry Adams? Is he positive? Is he a bitter cynic? There, there is a bitterness to Henry Adams to be sure. And that comes through in a very pronounced way in his anti-Semitism, which, which was not unique to Adams or, or people of his Brahmin class. But, but he was he was very strong in this, stronger than most people. I think that that speaks also to a certain kind of idiosyncrasy within the Adams family. Brooks and people commented on, on Brooks and sometimes his mental health. When, when Brooks got deep into a groove, he got really deep into a groove. And, and so I, I think that, that, that that was there, that the mental health inheritance of that family could be a difficult thing. So there was a bitter side, certainly to Henry Adams. Although if you if you read, you know, to the first half of the education where he's you know mainly looking at his youth and uh, discussing his family not as being famous but just as people he's discussing 
what it meant to be in the library of the old house, which is the house that when people go to Quincy, that's the house they go to. That was the house that John Adams and, and Abigail Adams bought you know, in the 1780s. And he's talking about the library. All that's very real, all that's very true. And when it relates to us, you know, the, the pleasures of, of reading and learning, that's all very real and true. Henry Adams could not have been the lifelong learner that he was. I mean, this is somebody who was writing, you know, basically up until the time that he died. This is, this is a fabulous letter writer. I mean, you know, sometimes letters that just go on and on and on. Very well informed. He plays in these letters. He, he's referencing his, his real education. He's referencing Shakespeare. He's referencing the Bible. He's bringing up passages. He's, he's, he's quoting from Cicero. There was real enjoyment there. And so this isn't somebody who just, you know, kind of mentally, you know, turned it off at 45 or 50 and went on intellectual cruise control. He continued reading. He continued writing. He continued traveling. He continued having conversations and arguments. So this was somebody who loved his life in a very strong way. So we'll get to Henry Adams's uh, understanding of history in Dynamo and the Virgin in a little bit. But first, Brooks Adams had his own, I don't know if theory is the right word, but he, he wrote a book called The Law of Civilization Decay, which is very interesting to say the least. He, he believed that control of the money supply and property would lead to sort of like a dissipation of energy within the society and saw this happen over time in uh, history. And he was particularly venomous, I think, about with the Jews and was saying that they're leading to the, the, the dissipation of energy within the United States. And so what was Henry's relation to all this? Did he agree with his brother? Did he think he was crazy? What, like, how, how did he view Brooks's theories? I think he largely agreed with them. In letters, he told Brooks that he did. And there might have been some brotherly kindness going on there. Although in a, in a separate letter that Henry wrote to a friend, Elizabeth Cameron, he said pretty much the same thing, that you know, he, 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 he agreed with what Brooks was writing. Brooks was writing from you know, really a kind of a, of a romantic perspective in that he was condemning uh, this sort of modern industrial financial nexus. And he was you know, emphasizing you know, better periods of history, including for him, the medieval period. Brooks had gone to Europe and fallen in love with cathedral culture out there. And so, and Henry's gonna share this obviously, you know, with, with Mont Saint-Michel and Chart. And so the sensibility that both these brothers pick up or think that they pick up from the medieval period, it, it arms them to attack modernity from uh, an historical context. And Henry agrees with this perspective. And this will play, as you note, into the trope of economic anti-Semitism, which they, of course, did not invent, but which they, they traffic in. The notion that you know, the Jewish people are the carriers of this process of of modernity seen in international financial capitalism that has has so profoundly altered uh, you know their 19th century late 19th century world let's talk about adams's understanding so or henry adams's understanding so he had the chap the famous chapter the dynamo and the virgin and he writes he began this is in the third person. He began to feel the 40-foot dynamos as a moral force, much as the early Christians felt the cross. The planet itself seemed less impressive. And he continues on about uh, his reaction to the dynamos at the Chicago World's Fair. So, I mean, can you just give us like a brief um, rundown of 
what his theory is, and then we'll go. Yeah, the, the theory is that the dynamo of industrialization is, in effect, kind of death wish for civilization. That we think that, that we can, that we own technology, and that, that we know exactly where the technology is going to take us. But he questions this, and uh, he looks to the Virgin as an example of a different type of sensibility, one in which people were presumably less arrogant, more humble, more at the behest um, and whim of tradition, superstition, nature, things like that. One of the things I find striking about his, his critique of Dynamo is it is one that uh, I find to be somewhat contemporary today. We talk, you know, for example, about, uh, about climate change. Technology, we, we, we seem to, you know, there seems to be a consensus, is, is, is part of the problem. And yet, we reflexively fall back upon the notion that technology will also be the solution. And it, and it, just, it just takes enough technology and capitalism to get behind the technology to pioneer these you know, you know, sort of you know, carbon neutral technologies and whatnot that, that will, that will you know, get us back to where we want to be. Adams would probably, in a mordant way, I'm not sure if he would completely believe this, but, but he, might, he might say that we were just you know, engaging in wishful thinking and point out to us that, that when we are, are pronouncing ourselves as scientific people, deeply involved in data-driven technology, in fact, we are, we are resurrecting a part of the past. That is, we didn't really give up our, our God, um, our superstitions. We just transferred them to the new priesthood, which would be the inventors and the technocrats. And, and these people, they can give us tremendous things but if you were here today and he said, you know, I asked somebody on the street, you know, what is, what is one of the highest symbols of your technological civilization? If somebody pulled out an iPhone, I think he might just laugh. Yeah. But hasn't there always been idolatry? Like it's not that it's new with the technological age. So how did he say, I mean, maybe that there were more believers in the 14th century, which he was focused on, but does, wasn't there still alternatives? Was like, what is, is it that technology is just more convincing? Alternatives to what? Alternatives to sort of an established church or a belief uh, in, in awe or something. I, I don't know that, that, that he thought that, that we were ever going to go beyond our need for things larger than ourselves. What the transcendentalists, someone like Emerson would say, that's what, that's what nature really is. It's, it's the thing that's bigger than we are, that, that, we, that we crave. And, and you know, Henry was no transcendentalist, but I think that I can imagine him agreeing with the notion that this is part of the human condition. So I guess the question is, you know, what are our gods going to do for us? And I mean that in a selfish sense. Uh, I say that kind of tongue in cheek as well. And, and so for Henry, and, and again, there's a romantic side here as well. He preferred the virgin uh, because it was a hierarchical civilization, form of civilization that I think that he felt more comfortable with, which of course is ironic because he belongs to the Adams family. And, and, and this is all part of the American evolution. But with the Adamses, uh, and I would take this back to John Adams and John Quincy Adams. This was not um, this was not common man democracy. It was really a deferential form of democracy, and that's what Henry felt comfortable with, and that's what he he thought you know we were we were sort of like you know losing, and so to look to the past and to see uh, a more hierarchical form of civilization, I think that spoke to him. But but I should also add that and I mentioned these cathedrals. Henry Henry was a you know a great you know lover of art. And he liked medieval art. 
and he liked the cathedrals. And, and he would say, as other people have said, that, you know, if you show me your art, I'll tell you something about the civilization that you have. And so, uh, like a lot of people, and, and Americans felt very insecure about their art. And in fact, you know, you know, the great masters, one of the things that these robber barons do is, is, is they, they send buyers to Europe, you know, to, to collect all these Rembrandts and whatnot. They weren't really collecting, some were collecting American painters, but most of them weren't because American painters didn't have that kind of purchase. They weren't, they weren't really where it's at. So if you want to be legitimized by presumably like the world's best art, that was still Europe. And, and, and so, you know, Henry can be at odds with these robber barons, but if Henry is saying in some sense, you know, I prefer the medieval civilization, I prefer the Renaissance civilization because the art that produced must've said something good about that civilization. Actually, people like JP Morgan, this arch financier that Henry didn't really care for, he was doing the same thing. He was about a third of the Met collection to this day, I think, roughly, is still that original sort of you know, J.P. Morgan bequest. Interesting. Why did he choose the Virgin as the uh, opposite? I know in his time, Brooks Adams and I think others were sort of making fun of him for his cult of women, and which is certainly an unfashionable position then. So why did he choose that figure as opposed to Jesus or God? Yeah, he did that in a number of places, even before he published The Education of Henry Adams. And had that famous chapter there. And, and so he sort of put women on a pedestal, but he did it in a very kind of patriarchal 19th century way. What, what, what historians I think used to refer to as the cult of womanhood or the cult of true womanhood. In other words, by putting a woman on a pedestal, what Henry was doing here was also saying that this woman really had no place in you know, the rough and tumble of politics because she was above that and she would only get sullied if in fact you know she she she, she engaged in politics, so Henry's uh, you know enamoring with the historical woman, so to speak, which reaches its apex with the Virgin. This was his way, I think, of identifying a kind of interesting dichotomy. So the dynamo is is male. The dynamo is industry. The dynamo is technology. And like a lot of people, Henry would uh, think of these as, as you know, sort of masculine characteristics. And so the virgin is, is fecund, the virgin is organic, the virgin is agrarian and mother nature kind of thing. And so as a literary trope, it kind of works because there's a duality or a dichotomy. And so Henry didn't take that part of it seriously, but I, I think that he liked the note of representing two poles and having you know, the, the genders represent each. And then, you know, sort of, you know, at least on the surface, giving to woman the higher, um, uh, the higher role, which in a sense works from Adams's perspective, because uh, again, he, he was no great fan of the dynamo, although he, he did like his creature comforts, which included, you know, you know, nice cars and you know, expensive passages to Europe, which he would make every year. Henry Adams is considered like one of the early scientific historians. So why was he doing that when he sort of saw the the virgin that would be sort of more of a dynamo um dynamo characteristic of history so why was he one of the people for that where as opposed he could have been a romantic historian he could have easily written like that yeah you know i i think it was actually sort of both his greatest historical statements of historical scholarship nine volume history of the united states the administrations of, of jefferson and uh, m addison 1800 to 1817 roughly and he went to European archives. And so that's the scientific part of it. And the way that he treated the past 
which was largely you know, not in the same vein as a romantic 19th century historian, someone like uh, George Bancroft, who, who could dip into hagiography. Uh, on the other hand, Henry was a good storyteller. And uh, I, I think, I think you know, if, if, you, if you wade through the nine volumes or, or, or much of it, it's very, you still sort of get this sense that America is on the rise. It's on a, it's on a good plane. And, uh, and I think that, that I think you know one can defend that historically, but also I, I think it does speak to this notion that Adams also you know did project something you know good for America when when he really dipped into scientific history he wrote a handful of really impenetrable essays using theorems and statistics that you know after he was gone you know subsequent physicists have looked at and said yeah it doesn't it doesn't hold up actually. The comment that you made earlier about Brooks and the joke, I think that that more principally applies to those types of essays. I think that, that, that Henry was saying to historians who thought that they were practicing scientific history, wrestle with this. Going to our closing questions, uh, you're a trained historian. So who was a scholar that had a, a big impact, either through distance, sort of like reading or someone like an actual mentor? I would say, you know, some that you mentioned earlier, Richard Hofstetter. I was, a, I was an undergraduate and I was taking a summer history class and I was assigned one of his books, actually one of his, you know, probably lesser read books, The Idea of a Party System and uh, looking at politics in the early Republic. And maybe, I don't know, a couple of weeks later or something, it was the same summer, uh, I walked into a bookstore and I saw his, 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 his most famous book, The American Political Tradition and the Men Who Made It. And I didn't recognize the title, of course, but the name Hofstetter stuck out. So uh, I grabbed it and Hofstetter, a very literate historian, a uh, very supple-minded and nuanced historian. He was, I think, the first historian who really spoke to me and interested me. And so who is a younger scholar that, that listeners to this podcast or people generally should pay more attention to? So I like James Finley. Finley, he, he teaches at Texas and San Antonio. And uh, I have an interest in transcendentalism and he's done uh, uh, some good work on the transcendentalists. And uh, I'm kind of interested in how he's going to, you know, uh, what he's going to do, you know, over the next 20 years or so in that field. So how do you as a historian um, and someone who reads about the past and spends a lot of time in the past, how do you read the current news in a, in a different way from everyone else? I suppose that there are times when, depending upon what the topic is, I'll have some content because my field is, 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 is U.S. history and I, I've done a lot in biography, literary history, and political history. And so sometimes I'll, I'll see you know, articles and I'll, I'll think that, that they're just not informative enough that yeah, there's maybe space constraints and there's a lot of shorthanding and uh, it can be useful to have that past because you can bring some of the context that, that isn't always brought to, brought to, uh, brought to the fore. Let's see. I, I think, I think now, you know, with, with, with critical race theory being a thing in our culture, there's been some attention placed on the compromise of 1850 and the Kansas, Nebraska, things like that. And so to hear politicians talk about this, sometimes in ways that, that you know, aren't, aren't frankly accurate. It's good to have that context and backstory. And the last question is from Robert Gilpin, who a uh, professor at Princeton, who used to ask his students, do current students know more now than Athenian stu students did in the time of the Peloponnesian War? Well, you know, honestly, I don't know, because I, I have no idea where, where, you know, students at that time, where they were mentally. And, you know, how do we approach the question? There's so many more students 
today. Percentage-wise, I suppose that, that the students in antiquity, that would have been a, a very elite group and, and their training would have been very culturally based. And so I guess the cross-cultural comparison I can make across over time is that I would say American students are probably getting, in a sense, a similar education in that it is also going to be culturally grounded in what a culture and what a civilization values, which I think is why there's so many questions about things like critical race theory, because unlike even three or four or five years ago, there's so many more questions now. History is, is I think, up for grabs in a way that it wasn't until, until very recently. And, and that makes it a challenge and that makes it exciting. And to go back to something I, I, I said earlier uh, uh, in the Jeffersonian marketplace of ideas, I, I, hope, I hope that the good ideas, that the good interpretations, I hope that they, that they went out. Thank you for being a part of IR Talk. I appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to IR Talk. Again, if you enjoyed the episode, I would really appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. See you on the next episode.